0: with students who are wondering what their next step in life and education is and so uh, they're thinking about seminary potentially or someone told them they should come to seminary and so I have a conversation with them and I love that back and forth of just hearing what God is doing in their life and how I can help and bring clarity to that and those are really enriching conversations. I really like those. Those are a lot of fun. Uh, this being a series on temptation, I feel like up front I have to make a disclaimer to say I am no expert on resisting temptation, um, but I do hope to share with you some of the uh, some of the things I've gleaned from Scripture as I've been looking through our story this morning. One of uh, my preaching professors always said, "You are your own first audience," so I assure you that what I'm saying this morning, I am saying as much to myself or more than to any of you here. So I want to I draw our attention to a story uh, from my own life that links into a story from Scripture that unpacks, I think, a really essential aspect of what it means to uh, resist temptation. So I came to faith in grade 11 through some friends in high school, and we, uh, I started attending church with them. They were going to a certain church. I just kind of tagged along. Very quickly got involved. And it wasn't very long before the youth and young adult pastor there uh, started giving me opportunities to speak in the youth service and to do lots of different things. And it wasn't that many years later, three or four years later, where he came up to me and said, you know, I think you really should consider vocational ministry. You con- should consider pastoral ministry. I That had never entered my mind up until that point. Um, but I trusted my mentor, Kevin. And uh, so he said, you know, we, we want to help you. We want to help you make this decision." And so I had this amazing privilege of getting together with people from the church, elders, people who knew me well, friends, and we sat around this table. And for two hours, I was the center of attention, and they just spoke words of life and encouragement and clarity. And I'll never forget that experience. And I've come to realize that actually it's sadly quite rare among people who are considering vocational Christian ministry, as I said, I have conversations with people who are considering seminary, that actually doesn't happen very often. And so it was an immense privilege for me to just sit there and just soak that up. And my mentor, Kevin, uh, he drew my attention to one passage, and so I want to take us there this morning. So in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew... Looking in verse uh, 13 of chapter 3, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry on, or we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. I want to pause there. So Kevin read these words, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Kevin, these words are for you. You are God's dearly beloved Son, and he is pleased with you. And I, uh, I, I was mesmerized by those words. I was captivated by them. And I'd been a Christian for a while, so I, I knew that. But in that moment, something transitioned from my head to my heart, and I felt that. And... My stepdad, at that point, had been involved in my life for a while, but we never really connected emotionally, and I didn't have any contact with my with our biological father, and so I didn't have that category of being a beloved son, in my experience. But those words just did something to me, and if I think about it, you know, I could kind of tear up even now, just, just imagining uh, what that meant. And for each one of us here today, actually, if you have chosen to make that commitment of following Christ in obedience, you've chosen to make Jesus Lord, do you know that you are a beloved son or daughter? You are a beloved child of God, and God is well-pleased with you. I came across this phrase from James Bryan Smith, uh, in his book, The Good and Beautiful God. And he has, a, he has a, number, a series, Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Life, Good and Beautiful Community. And he has this creed in it. And I'll give it to you at the end in the benediction, but the first line is this, I am God's child in whom God dwells and delights. And as you read that book, and it's supposed to be done in a group, you're supposed to, every time you get together, you're supposed to recite this, and it becomes a declaration of your identity. So, If you've made that commitment to Jesus, would you say that? Would you say that? I am God's child in whom God dwells and delights. Okay, say it again. I am God's child in whom God dwells and delights. Can you imagine that the God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into being, the God who lived with, the God God the Father who lived with and through the Son Jesus, The God who raised Jesus from the dead, that very God is your father. That very God is your parent. You know, Sandy, if I didn't get an amen from that, I think I was doing something wrong. Thank you, Sandy. I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) This is the one we can call Daddy God. It's an amazing, and you can just sit and just chew on that all day. It's an amazing Amazing thing And you know, if, if you're here this morning and you haven't actually made that commitment, if you're here here or you're watching online and you haven't yet made that commitment, but there's something that stirs up in your heart when you hear that, and you actually long to be able to say that, that God actually extends that invitation to you. And so you can email us, prayer at JerichoRich.com, and we can have a conversation with you about how to actually accept that new identity that God extends to you. So this is actually a crucial background. This passage is a crucial background because immediately Jesus goes into, into his temptation. And we don't really pick that up because it's the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next chapter, but it is like one piece, and it seamlessly moves through. So the first two verses of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became hungry. So it's like he had this experience, and then he went into the desert. And there's a few things that this juxtaposition between these two things can show us. Number one, temptation often comes very quickly after a mountaintop spiritual experience. And I've had conversations with people. You know, they've been baptized. I've had the privilege of baptizing them. And they, they know, like, in every fiber of their being that they've made this decision. And they've come to follow God. And it's a joyous occasion. And then, like, next Sunday I meet them. And they're just like, I don't know. Did I make the right decision? And there's, there's a guilt that comes. Not a guilt. A doubt that comes. And, and there's some... There's some it, I, don't, I don't even know how it happens, but it seems to be very common, a very common experience that people have, whether, where they have a really rich encounter with God, and very soon after, there's temptation, there's doubt, there's some of that that's creeping in. I would have thought it would just been a nice, I mean, I know there's mountaintops, I know there's valleys, I thought it would be been a nice gentle road down into the valley and then come back up again, but it's like a precipitous plunge, like it just, people just fall off, fall off the cliff, and it's really hard, and it's unexpected. But this was Jesus' experience. He had his baptism. He's like, boom, right there into the wilderness. I wanted to reiterate, number two, I wanted to reiterate something Wally said, is God does not tempt people. God led Jesus into the wilderness, but it was the devil who did the tempting. God knew what was going to happen, but it was not God. God was not the one who tempted. Number three, temptation often precedes times of future fruitfulness and ministry. It is no coincidence that this happens immediately before Jesus enters his public ministry. And there was a, a honing and a refining and a pruning process that happened in the midst of this. And these were things that Jesus would encounter in various ways in his own ministry in the subsequent pages of the Gospels. He encountered many of these temptations in different forms. And so it was God's desire to shape and mold him to resist these temptations now and in the future. And, you know, even if we fail, even if we give in to our temptations, even in that there is a process that God is learning, that God is showing us how to become more faithful. In the parallel passage in Luke, chapter 4. It says that Jesus went into the wilderness, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just as if the Holy Spirit shoved him into the wilderness and said, see you later. See you in 40 days. That he, Jesus entered the wilderness and was empowered. It was filled by the Holy Spirit. And you know that when we enter seasons of temptation, when we enter, um, when we enter those seasons of temptation, the Holy Spirit is actually with us, right? We said, We are children in whom God dwells and delights. God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And God is with us, close as breath, in seasons of temptation. And number five, temptation can come in the midst of weakness. So it said, I love the Bible, it's so understated, right? It's like, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. Of course he was hungry! Maybe he was even hangry. And so, it's like no no, uh, surprise that You know, Jesus speaks these words to Satan. This is like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. He was probably like, Satan got the brunt of his anger. He was just hungry. He just wanted to get this over. God, bring me a cheeseburger. I'm just going to get through this. You know? But like, it it was in his his weakness. It was in Jesus' weakness that the devil came to him. And I think in my own experience, in seasons of weakness, when I'm tired or, you know, burnt out, stressed out, something's happening, then those are the times when actually even though I want to let my guard down, I need to have my guard up because some of those temptations can come. I want you to notice how Satan starts his temptation. The devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God. Now, when I read that, it sounds to me like what Satan is saying, if you are the Son of God, and I don't really think you are, but if. But actually, interestingly, the grammar of the text doesn't actually support that. What, Jesus, what Satan is actually saying is, if you are the Son of God, and I know you are, it's actually a fact. Because remember, Jesus came up out of the water and a voice from heaven spoke and said, you are my beloved son. This is a matter of public record. Jesus knows it. Everybody there heard it. Satan actually doesn't dispute that. And for each one of us, even though we're tempted to doubt our role as children of God, Satan himself doesn't actually dispute that. He knows it. So what I think a better translation would be something like, since you are the son of God. Satan doesn't actually want to tempt us to doubt our identity, but he wants to confuse us about what that identity means for us. Yes, Jesus, you are the son of God, but what kind of son are you going to be? What does it mean for you to be the son of God? So these temptations are unfolding, um, kind of a, an unfolding question about like how Jesus will be the Son of God. And the first temptation, so if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread, but Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation is a temptation to self-sufficiency right? And Jesus must have thought in that moment, he's really hungry. Jesus must have thought, well, I I can make these loaves. I can make these stones into bread. Is that really such a bad thing? I'm really hungry. And it wouldn't necessarily actually be a bad thing for Jesus to use his power to provide for his needs. But he knew that was not the reason that God had led him into the wilderness. He could have done it but he knew that the reason God had led him into the wilderness was to, so that he could rely on the provision of his Father. And the temptation was to break that grasp for self-sufficiency that, you, that I can provide for my own needs. And notice that um, Jesus uses Scripture as a tool, as a weapon, against the temptation. And Jesus will continue to do this. These are words that he had hidden in his heart, they are words that he knew inside and out. And he pulls them out and he says, this is, this is a shield against this temptation. And scripture is one of, the, one of the richest and most vibrant ways we can resist temptation if we have the opportunity to hide it in our hearts. So what about you? What are the things you need? What are the things that you know you could provide for yourself? What are the things that you want to buy or do or make? That if you actually gave it a thought, that if you sat there and reflected on it, you would know that doing those things is actually buying into that subtle lie that God actually isn't able to provide. Does something come to mind? The second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to see the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off! For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. So Satan is upping the challenge. Satan himself is actually using scripture now. And what he says is true, but it's not the whole truth. And this is where the temptation can be so insidious. Often, what we're tempted to believe is true in a way, but is actually not the whole truth. And this temptation is to self promotion. You picture Jesus sitting on top of the temple, and he's just like, This would be a great way to get my ministry off with a bang. I'm just going to throw myself off. Angels are going to like lower, gently lower me onto the ground. There's like thousands of people in the temple. Like, this is going to be a show. It would probably be great for his ministry. But again, that's not the reason God had led him into the wilderness. And often the way God works is with a slow, gentle, unobtrusive way of working and Jesus had to understand that God in God's own time would elevate Jesus would create the impact of Jesus' ministry that Jesus was there for he didn't need to do anything crazy and risky by the way (laughs) You know. Then the third temptation. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and the angels took care of Jesus. So the amazing thing is, Satan actually offers Jesus all those kingdoms. And you know what? They're actually Satan's to give. The Bible says that the devil is you know, the prince of this world. So he actually has the authority to give to Jesus these things. And wouldn't, would not it not have been easier? I suspect at this point Jesus probably already knew what he was in for. And wouldn't it have been easier just to say, all the good I could do if I had this authority? But he knew it was the easier way, but it wasn't the right way. You notice what Satan says, all of these things I will, um, if you will kneel down and worship me, I will give you all these things. So Satan demands worship, but Jesus responds. This is really crucial. You must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Satan just says, you just have to worship me. But Jesus knows that God demands more than just worship. He demands service. I I can worship anything, but it makes no demands on me. But God, in his call to a holy life, makes demands on us he asks for not our love not only our love and our worship but our service and Jesus could see through that he could see the difference okay i'll put up my hand first who among us this week has given into any kind of temptation anybody anybody sure <laughs> who among us has maybe even given into one of these temptations to use our own power to get what we think we need or want in our own time? Who among us has used our power to show off a little bit, to um, make ourselves look better in the eyes of others? Who among us has used our power to do what we think is good, but we recognize that we've taken the power in the wrong way? and we haven't used it appropriately. I can say that. So, how do you view this passage then? Now, this may not be true for everybody, but I want to say here's where my mind goes. Okay, I look at this passage and I say, okay, Lord, I've messed up. So I look at this and I say, okay, so here, here it is, here's, here's how I'm going to not mess up in the future, right? I just have to, I have to memorize scripture, um, I have to understand my own weaknesses, I have to under, understand the, you know, the tactics of the devil, um, and then next time it happens, man, I am ready, I am set, I'm going to crush this. And it probably wouldn't be surprising to, for me to say, yeah, it doesn't always work out like that. So then what happens when I fail once, twice, a third time, and I go, well, maybe I just didn't understand the passage properly, or, um, you know, I just got to study it harder. And and I'm sure every, you know, people um, like Sandy and, you know, Brad and Rose and Steve, I mean, these guys probably don't have problems. It must just be me. And all of a sudden, a passage that I was really excited about because it gave me the tools, all of a sudden actually it starts stirring in me a little bit of despair. Because I go, oh, I just can't, I can't live up to this. And then I feel like the more I look at it, it's like the devil's you know, looking at me off the page and saying, I got gotcha. you. And this passage, this piece of this book that is supposed to give life, all of a sudden it is nothing but condemnation to me. And maybe I go to some familiar passages and I just sit there, you know, just small pieces that bring me comfort, or maybe I just pick it up and I put it away on the shelf and I don't touch it for a while. So that's where my mind goes. Maybe that's not true for you. So then how is this actually good news? How is this actually good news? It's good news because it tells us that Jesus defeated temptation. You're like, so what? That was Jesus. Jesus was God after all. Yes, he was. But Jesus was also human. And sometimes I'm tempted to think, well, Jesus defeated temptation because he was God. But what would be the point of temptation if, in fact, it was a foregone conclusion that Jesus would defeat it because he was God? Do you know that Jesus defeated this temptation as a human being? As a perfect human being? And then link that thought with what I said before about us being God's children, in whom God dwells and delights. And then the New Testament says that we are in Christ. Dozens of times it says we are in Christ. This idea that we are actually, when we choose to become followers of Jesus, we are united with Christ. So Jesus was the perfect human being. We are sons and daughters of God, much, in much the same way that Jesus himself is the Son of God, and we become united with Jesus. And do you know what happens? Jesus' perfect life actually becomes our perfect life. Jesus' perfect life becomes our perfect life. And so when we read this, part of it, yes, we want to say, here's ways that in the day-to-day life we can counter temptation. Here's things that we can learn, but the main point of the passage is to say Jesus defeated temptation. And you know what? We can as well. He has done it on our behalf. It's actually already done. Jesus' perfection is exchanged for our inadequacy. And is much the same way that the cross is about dealing with the penalty of sin. Jesus' perfect life is about dealing with the power of sin. And this changes my reading of this passage. It changes my reading of all of Scripture. Because instead of condemnation, it is suddenly good news. It is good news that Jesus has come, that he has done this thing, and that as I become more closely aligned with Christ, as I come to understand what it means to be in Jesus, this also becomes a possibility for me. And it's not something I can just muscle through. But it's actually reality. I want to, well, I want to call the worship team up. And I just ask that God would bless us through Jesus' perfect life and his death. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the perfect life of Christ, the perfect life of your Son. And thank you also for the immense and incomprehensible reality that we too are children of God that you have looked at the perfection of Jesus and made it into ours. Would you encourage our hearts today with that reality? Would you show us how understanding our identity, who we are, understanding what it means for us to be children of God, can help us stand firm in the midst of temptation. For the glory of God. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.